Welcome to this verse-by-verse Bible teaching from Calvary Queen Creek in Arizona. We hope you're blessed by listening. Romans 10.17 says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. For more information, please visit calvaryqueencreek.org. All right, so today we're going to be talking about spiritual warfare. I titled this message, The Unseen War. And our main text will be 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 8 through 23. Let's start off with prayer. God, we come before you right now, and we just thank you so much for everything that you have blessed us with. We're so blessed. We still have the freedoms and the privilege to gather here freely. And we thank you, and we don't take those for granted. We pray for those churches and other areas across our nation where there's restrictions on them being able to gather, God. I just pray that you are with them right now, comfort them, give them the boldness to speak up, Lord, against what's going on, against the the spiritual forces that are influencing our culture and our our society, God. We need you. So I pray for the gift of teaching this morning, that your word cuts to our hearts, and that uh, you increase and I decrease, and that we all walk out of this building different than the same way we came in, Lord. And so, fill this place, God. In Jesus' name, amen. In the spring of 1948, just a couple of years after the horrific events of the Holocaust, there was a powerful movement that was trying to bring the rebirth of Israel. And with everything in motion to see the name Israel on a map again, resistance in the nearby Arab nations and communities rose in the land of what is today the modern state of Israel. The Yishuv, a Jewish settlement that had lived in pre-state Israel, was preparing for war. Both Jewish and Arab forces saw the capture of the elevated and fortified town of Safad as a necessity, and thus the war for Israel's independence was in motion. And with the British still supporting the Arabs with superior weapons and training, the Jewish military forces were severely and utterly outgunned. They were outskilled and totally outnumbered 10 to 1. And it was the perfect recipe for an Arab victory, and yet the battle lasted months. In late April 1948, just days before Israel would make its declaration of statehood, the weary and battered Jewish forces at Safad received a few homemade artillery pieces that they nicknamed the Davidka. This homemade three-inch mortar was terrible at hitting its targets. In fact, most of the time, it either didn't hit the intended target or it failed to explode altogether. Yet, this little piece of artillery made all the difference in the Battle of Safad. When they were fired, it sent the Arabs in full retreat that night, giving the victory to the Jews. So how could this Davidka, this terrible piece of artillery, send a full-on Arab force in retreat? Well, here's why. No matter how inaccurate it was, the bomb caused a bright flash of light and a remarkable loud noise. It was bright and it was loud. That is when it did explode. And this noise and this flash was so powerful that the rumors quickly spread throughout the Arab ranks that the Jews had an atomic bomb. So they up and left thinking that the Jews were about to wipe them out when in reality, the Jews were so far inferior in military strength. They were so much more weak and they were at their breaking point. But just because their military strength wasn't superior doesn't mean their force was. Why? Because God was on their side. 
You see, the rebirth of Israel fulfilled thousands of years of prophecy in the Bible, and God made a promise to Israel and that he would protect their nation. And all throughout Israel's history, both in the Old Testament and in the wars since 1948, there are tons of miraculous stories that you can look up, by the way. Stories just like this where Israel should have lost. They should have lost, but they didn't. The Six-Day War in 1967, the the Arab nations surrounded Israel, which were, by the way, Syria, Jordan, Egypt, Lebanon. They all launched a full-on invasion all at the same time. And within six days, Israel pushed them all back with victory and even reclaimed more land and the capital city of Jerusalem. Israel should have lost, but they didn't. In 1973, the Yom Kippur War, where Syria to the north and Egypt to the south launched invasions on Israel when it was severely weak in military strength. Israel was totally unprepared. They were actually caught off guard. They had to call in all their reserves. And yet within weeks, Israel miraculously won. In fact, one of the last battles of the Yom Kippur War uh, in the Golan Heights, Syria had hundreds of hundreds of tanks, and Israel just had a few. And yet when the Syrians came up to the, the missile line, they retreated, and no one knows why. It remains a mystery. God was on Israel's side, and he still is. And God made a promise with Abraham, and God keeps his promises. And it's interesting that they named the mortar, this artillery piece, they named it the Davidka, David versus Goliath. The name fits perfectly. David versus a giant. Everyone thought Goliath was going to win, but small little David killed the giant. But why? Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 17. Keep your finger, if you turn to 2 Kings, you can keep your finger there. We're going to go back a little bit to 1 Samuel chapter 17. And we're going to see why David won. 1 Samuel chapter 17. We'll pick up in verse 43. Verse 43. So the Philistines said to David, so Goliath is speaking to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp to the Philistines, to the birds of the air, and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. That's it right there. The battle is the Lord's. He fights for us. You read First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First uh, and Second Chronicles, even in Exodus and Numbers, uh, all throughout the Old Testament, you see cases where God fights for Israel when Israel has no strength at all in themselves. You see time and time again where Israel should have lost, but they didn't because God was on their side. The battle was the Lord's, and God fought for them. Now let's go to 2 Kings chapter 6. This will be our main text. 2 Kings chapter 6. 
which most of you are already there. I still have to turn there myself. All right, there I am. So, as Christians, we're engaged in a war. At least we're supposed to be. All around us is an unseen, invisible war. And if you saw for a moment what that war actually looks like, if we were to peel back the physical layer of things and see this just the spiritual, you wouldn't be the same. It would change your life. And some of you have seen it. You would see the demonic and angelic forces all around. All of us, and I mean all of us, experience the effects of this war. And in, in this passage in 2 Kings, we see where there's a man who is overcome by fear, and then he sees the spiritual reality, and it changes his mindset. So verse 8, 2 Kings chapter 6, Now the king of Syria was making war against Israel, and he consulted with his servants, saying, My camp will be in such and such a place. And the man of God, that being Elisha, sent to the king of Israel, saying, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are coming down there. So the king of Syria wants to fight Israel. And he says, Okay, build my camp at this location. And somehow, the prophet Elisha supernaturally is aware of this plan. And so he goes to warn the king of Israel. And he's like, Yo, okay, the the Syrians are plotting this war against us. Um, We need to do something. And so, verse 10, we see here, Then the king of Israel sent someone to the place of which the man of God had told him. Thus he warned him, and he was watchful there, not just once or twice. So remember that, because we're going to come back to that part. He was watchful. So Israel's king sends someone to this location to scout out the location and report what's going on. Verse 11, Therefore, the heart of the king of Syria was greatly troubled by this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, will you, not some, or will you not show me which of us is for the king of Israel? So in other words, he finds out that Israel knew about this plan. And he's not happy. And so he gathers his servants in his little committee. He's like, okay, uh, which of you is a spy? Because clearly Israel knew about this plan. And it had to be one of you because I only told you guys. And then in verse 12, if I was this servant right here, I'd be pretty nervous saying this. Verse 12, and one of his servants said, "Uh, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who's in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. (laughs) So if I were the king of Syria, I'd I'd go from mad to really mad at that point. I mean, in other words, basically, the servant's saying, hey, uh, this prophet Elisha, yeah, it's, it's his fault. And by the way, he actually knows what you say privately in your bedroom. And he actually tells the king of Israel that stuff. I mean, you talk about awkward. Now, needless to say, like I said, the Syrian king wasn't a happy camper. And so in verse 13, he said, go and see where he is that I may send and get him. And it was told him, saying, surely he, referring to Elisha, is in Dothan. Verse 14 and 15, Therefore he sent horses and chariots and a great army there. And they came by night and surrounded the city. And when the, servant of the, when the servant of the man of God arose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? So the Syrian king sends a whole military force of horses and chariots. Uh, and at nighttime they surrounded the city of Dothan where Elisha was at. And Elisha's servant wakes up the next morning 
eats his bowl of cereals, getting ready to go out for a morning jog, puts his sneakers on, opens the door, walks out, and next thing you know, he sees a whole army surrounding the city. Completely surrounded. And naturally, he's terrified. I mean, who wouldn't be? So he goes to Elijah and he says, "Uh, there's an army out there. Uh, They're going to get us. What are we going to do? In verse 16, Elisha responds and he says, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. He's He's like, look, there's more of us than there are of them. And now if I was Elisha's servant, I'd be pretty confused. I'd probably bring out my hand and start counting and be like, okay, there's one of me, there's one of you, there's two of us, and there's like 10, 20, 30, 40, 50. Okay, yeah, Elijah, this isn't making a whole lot of sense. We're outnumbered, big time. What are you talking about here? And Elisha goes straight to prayer, verse 17. And Elijah prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Elisha knew exactly what was going on the entire time. And he prayed for God to open his servant's eyes and God opened his eyes for him to see the horses and chariots of fire. Not horses and chariots. We're talking about horses and chariots of fire. These were supernatural things. They weren't natural. And they were surrounding Elisha. And that was what Elijah was referring to when he says, there's more of us than there are of them. Verse 18 and 20. So when the Syrians came down to him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, strike this people, I pray, with blindness. And he struck them with blindness according to the word of Elisha. Now Elisha said to them, this is not the way, nor is this the city. Follow me and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. But he led them to Samaria. So it was when they had come to Samaria that Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. And the Lord opened their eyes and they saw. And there they were inside Samaria. So Elijah prays uh, to physically blind the Syrian army and God does that. And Elijah brings them over to the capital city um, of Samaria, which is the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel which is, by the way, 10 miles away from the city of Dothan where they were at. So, I mean, think about this. This whole army just went blind like that. And now Elijah's like, okay, hey, I'll take you over to Samaria. This is where I'll take you to the guy you're looking for. So they're walking this whole way, 10 miles blind. You know how hard it is to move an army like that? It's hard to move an army as it is than to do it while everyone's blind. That takes time. That, that's, you know, and you'll see why they take the next steps here. Verse 21, now when the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elijah, my father, shall I kill them? Shall I kill them? Verse 22, but Elijah answered, you shall not kill them. Would you kill those whom you have taken captive with your sword and your bow? Set food and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. Then he prayed a great fe- or he prepared a great feast for them. And after they ate and drank, he sent them away and they went to their master. So the bands of the Syrian raiders came no more into the land of Israel. So brings them to Samaria. And Elisha prays for God to remove their blindness. So they're no longer blind. They're in Samaria. They now see, oh, we're in Samaria. The king of Israel comes out and he's like, hey, these are the guys who try to attack us. And he's asking Elijah, hey, can we kill these guys? Let's kill them. <laughs> and Elijah's like, no, like these, these are our prisoners of war. We're not going to just kill them. And he says, look, 
They just walked 10 miles blind. They're probably tired. They're probably really thirsty and hungry. Let's get them. Let's prepare them a big feast and we'll send them on their way back to Syria. And that's what they did. And they never came back. (laughs) I mean, if I were one of the Syrian raiders and I experienced not just me being blind, but my whole army being blind like that, trying to take this guy away, I want to come back. To try to come back would defy logic. (laughs) It doesn't make any sense. And it's, it's remarkable, too, just the, the kindness that they show towards the Syrian raiders. And I'll let you, and you can, I encourage you guys to keep reading in 2 Kings, because then you'll find out the king of Syria went from mad to really mad to really, really mad. And I'll let you read the rest on your own, but we'll stop there uh, for now. So I've titled this message, The Unseen War. And if you call yourself a Christian, and that I mean, being a person who follows Christ in their life, then you are an enlisted soldier of Jesus Christ, and as we'll see in a moment. This whole message is to reveal that we need to be engaged in this unseen war every day. And if you're a Christian and you're not engaged in this war, then you need to wake up. You've got to stand up. You've got to get in the fight. You've got to get in the battle. And you ask, okay, well then, who do I fight? What do I fight with? Why am I fighting? Will there be victory? We're going to look at these questions and we're going to get our answers from Scripture. So, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. In uh, Ephesians, this is Paul's letter um, to the church in Ephesus. And in Ephesians chapter 6, we're going to pick up in verse 10. This is actually towards the tail end of his letter. So Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Paul says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. So first question, who are we fighting? We see here that we are fighting against the devil. We're not wrestling against flesh and blood. In other words, we're not fighting other people. Rather, we are fighting against principalities, against powers, the rulers of the darkness of this age, against what the Bible says, the spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. In other words, our enemy is the devil and his demons. That is who we wrestle against. But you also see in the Bible, as Christians, we also fight against the flesh. When I say the flesh, that's referring to our own sinful nature. So now we have two enemies, but also there's a third and what the Bible calls the world. And, obvi- and I'm not talking about everybody in the world because th- in the Bible you see the, bo- the, the word world is used in different contexts. So whenever you see the, world, the, na- the, the word world, look at the context. But in this context, it's referring to the system around us that is opposed to God, the society that is apart and opposed from God. So our, animal, our enemies are the devil and his demons, our own sinful nature, and the society that is opposed to God. 
What do we fight with? Notice in verse 10 that we are to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, not your might. If you were to do it in your might, you would lose really fast. It's impossible to do it within our own might. We cannot fight on our own. Our flesh is too weak. It's impossible for us to fight on our own. And that is why we need to be strong in the power of his might. But then Paul says to put on the whole armor of God, and he goes on to describe it here in verse 14. He says, Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Paul lays out our armor here. We have the belts of truth, a breastplate of righteousness. We, our feet are protected by the gospel, the shield of faith, helmet of salvation, and then the sword of the Spirit. The sword of, our, of, of the Spirit, which Paul says here is the word of God, which is this right here, the Bible. What do we fight with? The word of God. That is our sword. And that's what Jesus quoted when he was being tempted by Satan in the desert for 40 days. Satan was tempting him and Jesus quoted scripture after scripture. And Satan misquoted scripture. But Jesus came back with the truth. The truth. When the enemy attacks you with temptation, use the word of God to fight back. Saturate your mind with the word of God. But then we also see Paul names another source of power right after the sword of the spirit. Look at this in verse 18. He says, Praying always praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Paul lists prayer as something to use in this warfare. It's part of the armor of God. You see, prayer is like, is like calling in the big guns. In World War II, in the, the Pacific Theater, when the United States was fighting the Japanese military, uh, the United States was carrying out their island hopping campaign because the Japanese took over all these islands. And so the United States was trying to reclaim them. And uh, what oftentimes they would do when they would, right before they would try to invade an island, before the, the um, Marines or the army would go and step in, they would call in the naval artillery. Okay, and I'm, I'm talking about like these big battleships with huge guns. Like, how many of you seen the USS Iowa or the USS Texas, one of those huge World War II battleships? Like, those guns are huge. I would hate to be on the other end of those things. They're terrifying. I think one of them, some, like, probably go from the length of that door all the way to back here. Like, that's how big these cannons are. They're massive. And what they would do, they would call the naval artillery to fire on the island to basically punch a blow to make it a little easier for the Marines or the army, whoever's coming in, to take over the island. When we pray, we're calling on something so much more powerful than the naval artillery. When we pray, we're calling on the all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present, supreme being, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, to intervene. That's who we're calling on. So much more powerful than a naval battleship. And that is why prayer is so vital in our warfare, in our fight against our own sinful nature, in our fight against those who 
are opposed to God in our fight against the devil and his demons. The word of God, prayer. But also notice what Paul says. He says to be prayerful and watchful. You see, in warfare, you have to be aware. You have to be. Just like in our main text in 2 Kings, remember the king of Israel sent out that scout to the location where the Syrian king planned his initial attack? The scout was watchful, quote, watchful, not just once or twice. I find it really interesting that the author is very specific about that. He's watchful not just once or twice. In other words, he was watching the whole time. He was always watching. You know, I, and, and Jesus says in Matthew 26, 41, Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Watch and pray, so you don't enter into temptation. Watch and pray. Matthew thirteen thirty three. Take heed. This is also from Jesus. Take heed, watch, and pray. For you do not know when the time is. And here he's referring to his return. The rapture. You don't know when it is. Therefore, watch and pray. Be on alert. Be on guard. Luke 21, 36. Jesus also referring to the rapture of the church. He says, watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. Colossians 4, 2. Paul, writing this letter to the church in Colossae, says, continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant. Vigilant is another word for being watchful. Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. 1 Peter 5, 8. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith. James 4, 7, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. But the key there is submitting to God. Because if you don't submit to God and you try to resist the devil, you can't do it. You need the power of God. You need the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, as we sang this morning, the same power that rose Jesus from the grave. So if we want to resist the devil, if we want to take on this enemy, you can't do it on your own. You need to submit to God. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And that's a promise, guys. That's a guarantee. Submit to God, resist him, and he will flee from you. In any war, you need to be aware and watchful and vigilant of your surroundings. Otherwise, you make yourself vulnerable to the enemy. And it's sad to say that so many so-called Christians are completely oblivious to this warfare all around them. Like I said, the title of the message, it's an unseen war. It's invisible. But there's so many that don't really want to talk about it. There's a lot of churches that don't talk about spiritual warfare. Christians are being tortured and murdered for their faith in countries all over the world. Yet so many Christians here in our our culture have no clue as to what's going on out there. We're at war, guys. There's so many Christians that are enslaved to pornography, to drugs, alcohol, You name it. This is war. This is war. Sin kills. And if you don't believe me, I've said this before, look at all of human history. If you don't think sin kills, look at history. 
Why do we have so many wars? Why is there so much injustice in the world? It's because of sin. And we're at war with sin. We're at war with, against our sinful nature. We're at war against the devil and his enemies. Too many Christians are caught up in the temporary things of this life. What dominates your thoughts? Is it entertainment, sports, movies, music, hobbies, politics? I see too many Christians who are more passionate about arguing politics than they are in praying for those in authority. And when I say that, I mean all of those in authority. Not just the ones we like. We need to pray for especially the ones we disagree with. The more you pray for them, the more you will come to love that person and pray that they come to know Christ personally. I see too many Christians who get more upset when people talk bad or make fun of our country, yet when they, when they see people making fun of God or making fun of the Bible or making fun of our faith, they just appear to care less. Or when they hear that our own, our own brothers and sisters in the Lord all over the world are dying for their faith, they don't even think to pray for those suffering persecution. Question is, where is our focus? Where is your focus? Is it your faith and love for God or is it something else? And I'll say it. I love America. I love being an American. It's a blessing to be in this country. But I love God way more than I love my country. To do otherwise is idolatry. And I, see, I see too many Christians who say they love their nation and yet lie when they say it. Because they don't love the people in that nation. A nation is so much more than just a flag or a set of values that we all cherish. A nation, by definition, is the people. By definition. Do you love them? Do we love those people? And we need to evaluate our hearts. If there's hatred or prejudice in our hearts against a political group or any kind of group or people, we need to repent. We need to turn from our sin, turn to the Savior, and ask for forgiveness. As Christians, we can't get caught up in the affairs of this life. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3-4, through 4, we have a slide. Paul, writing to Timothy, says, You, therefore, must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Right there, we see that this life isn't going to be an easy-peasy life. There's going to be hardship. There's going to be rough times. But then, verse 4, he says, No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. Remember, Christian, this is not your home. America is temporary. Our whole life here is temporary. We're travelers passing through this life with a mission. We're strangers in a foreign land. We're not of this world. We're citizens of heaven first and foremost. So love your neighbor. Pray for them. Tell them what the lover of their soul did for them on the cross. You notice Paul uses the word entangle for a reason. It's a trap which means the affairs of this life will want to lure us out of what our mission and focus needs to be. And don't get me wrong, we still have responsibilities on this earth. We have to work to provide for our families. We need to vote. We need to speak up against the evils in our society. We can't be pacifists. Take a stand for righteousness, but do it in love. We need to be involved in those things, but if we do it without fulfilling our mission, 
with an eternal mindset, we make ourselves vulnerable to the enemy of our souls. Yes, the enemy of our souls. You guys realize the devil hates you? He hates you. He wants to keep you away from what really matters. One pastor once said, our greatest fear should not be a failure, but of succeeding at things in this life that don't really matter. Our greatest fear should not be a failure, but of succeeding at things in this life that don't really matter. Don't entangle yourself in the affairs of this life. You are an enlisted soldier of Christ and you aim to please him. We need to be in the word of God now more than ever. Christ is coming back for his church. Christ has called each and every one of us to tell people that the Messiah has come and his name is Jesus. That is why we are fighting in this spiritual warfare to answer the third question. You see, Adam and Eve were in this close, intimate relationship with God. When God made everything, created the earth, the animals, everything, you realize Adam and Eve, their relationship with God, their relationship with God was so close that they walked with God. They actually got to walk with God. And yet when they sinned, when they ate of the, the fruit, when they rebelled against God, that relationship was severed. Because God is a righteous, just, and holy God. He can't have sin in his presence. He can't have sin in his presence. That relationship was damaged, but God promised a Messiah to come and bring salvation. And God delivered on that promise when he came down to this earth in human form as Jesus, and he came and died in our place because of our sins against God. Our sin separates us from God, which automatically means we deserve death. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5, 8. He forgave our sins on the cross. He took our sins away. He died in our place. And three days later, he rose from the dead. And now he can have that relationship with you once again. That's what it's all about, guys. That's the gospel. To get that relationship. He died on the cross to get to you, your heart. He wants a relationship with you. And he made a way when there was no way. Sin separated us. And the only way, and, and, by, and because of our sin, we deserve to die. Which meant eternal separation from God. But God doesn't want that. That's why he, he came down to himself. God died for you. So he can get to you. He can have that relationship with you once again. That is the message that we need to get out to the whole world. Yet here in America, it's heartbreaking to see so many Christians that are willfully ignorant and not even willing to share that message. We are engaged in a war, a war for souls. And we have been commissioned by Jesus himself to spread this message to every corner of the earth. And we will face resistance from the enemy, our sinful nature, and those of the world. And that is why we need to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. When we pray, we're asking God to intervene. We're asking God to use his power to break hearts that have been hardened against God. 2 Corinthians 10.4 For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, in other words, they're not worldly, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. That's the weapons of our warfare. The word of God, prayer, calling and asking God to intervene. When Elisha's servant was trapped in fear, 
which so many of us are, maybe you're watching online, maybe you're gripped by fear. We're not called to live in fear. And Elisha's servant here was gripped by fear. And what did Elisha do immediately? He prayed. He prayed, God, open his eyes so he can see the truth, the spiritual reality. Just because we can't see something doesn't mean it doesn't exist. (laughs) You can't see the wind, but we see the effects of it. Just because you can't see the spiritual forces that are all around us, doesn't mean that it doesn't exist because you see the effects of it everywhere. Elisha prayed for his servant, God, open his eyes. Do we pray that prayer for those around us? That's a powerful prayer. That's our weapon. Not against the person, but against the, against the spiritual forces that are blinding that person. And for our last question, will there be victory? By his death and resurrection, resurrection Jesus overcame the world. He overcame the flesh and he overcame the devil. In other words, as believers, we do not fight for victory. We fight from victory because victory has already come when Jesus resurrected from the dead three days after his crucifixion. The spirit of God enables us by faith to appropriate Christ's victory for ourselves. Without God, without his Holy Spirit living inside of us, We would lose. We can't win against the devil or the world or even our own sinful nature. We can't. That is why the battle is the Lord's. It's his. He fights for us. Romans 8, 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? And as we get closer to the return of Christ, we need to be prepared because this invisible war will become even more and more evident. This last week, there was a Calvary Chapel in Nevada that filed a lawsuit against their, their governor. In Nevada, the governor is only allowing 50 people, in, 50 people in churches, regardless of how big the sanctuary is. Say the sanctuary could hold 1,000 people. Too bad, only 50 people. That's your max. Yet, The casinos are allowed to have up to 50% capacity, which is way more than 50 people. And this case went up to the Supreme Court and five out of the four Supreme Court justices ruled in favor of the Nevada governor. That is what happens when people are spiritually blind. They can't discern the things that are spiritual. They think gambling is more vital than the church. Guys, it's all spiritual. This is a spiritual war. You're going to see this more and more often as we get closer to Christ's return. We need to be ready to battle these spiritual elements by saturating ourselves in God's word and in prayer. We need to be watchful of the events that unfold around us because his return is soon. God was for the Jewish forces in their war for independence in 1948. And he fought for them by confusing the Arab nations and sending them in retreat at the moment when the Jewish forces were about to break. God fought for them. God was for David against Goliath. David prevailed. God was on Elisha's side and even had an army of angels at the ready to take on the Syrian raiders. But God intervened and the battle was over. Even though it really wasn't much of a battle, (laughs) it ended up without any violence or death, which is remarkable. That's, that's God's mercy. That's God's mercy and grace by sparing the Syrian raiders. And if you're in Christ, 
If you have been forgiven by him and he is your savior and your Lord, then the victory has already come. You have the Holy Spirit to enable you to overcome your flesh, to overcome the devil and the world. And I like what John says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 4. Look at this. I have a slide here. It says, you are of God, little children. You have. He doesn't say you will. He says, you have overcome them. And that's not because of us, not because of our strength, because he says right here, because he who is in you, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. That is why. It's because Christ lives in you. The Holy Spirit is dwelling inside of you. That same spirit that rose Jesus from the grave. For the believer, God resides in us through his spirit. And that's what the word of God says. Therefore, you're fighting not for victory, but from victory. As the worship team would like to come up, as I bring this to a close. Christian, if you're not in this fight, you need to. You have to. Don't be entangled with the affairs of this life. Don't make yourself vulnerable to the enemy. Don't get caught up in the distractions. Stay focused on what needs to be done. We've been commissioned, soldier. We have a mission. We have a duty. Christ called us to spread this gospel message to the ends of the earth. So we need to armor up. We need to read our Bible. We need to saturate ourselves with the word. We got to pray, 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 pray and be watchful. Be alert. Pray for those around us and pray for the church. Pray for other believers. Pray that the church unites. The church needs to get over our minor differences and we need to form a united front. We need to unite with other believers all over the world and do what we've been called to do. And I'd like to finish off by reading the lyrics from uh, that old hymn, Onward Christian Soldier. I was watching this um, documentary on the History Channel, which History Channel every now and then has a good show. That's actually history. But uh, I was watching this. It was about in World War II. was talking about how Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Winston Churchill, and Joseph Stalin worked together during World War II, which if you look at all three of them, they're, it's a really odd bunch. But at the time, uh, the United, before, the United, before Pearl Harbor, before the United States entered the World War, um, the American people didn't want to get involved. FDR, the, the Franklin Roosevelt, he wanted to, and Winston Churchill was pleading for Roosevelt to involve, get involved. He's like, look, we need you. We need the Americans. And, Amer- and FDR's hands were tied. He's like, look, the American people don't want to do this. I can't. And so in one of Winston Churchill's efforts to try to persuade them over, he, he um, got with Franklin Roosevelt on this naval battleship. They had a little ceremony. It was all, it's all on video, and you can watch it. And Winston Churchill purposely asked the band to play Onward Christian Soldier as a kind of persuasion tactic. And of course, it didn't work because once Pearl Harbor happened, then the United States woke up and was like, okay, we need to get involved. Everyone's mind changed at that point. Anyway, the lyrics go like this. I looked it up because I thought it was interesting. Onward, Christian soldiers, marching as to war, with the cross of Jesus going on before. Christ, the royal master, leads against the foe, forward into battle. See his banners go. Onward, Christian soldiers, marching as to war, with the cross of Jesus going on before. Like a mighty army, Moves the church of God. Brothers, we are treading 
where the saints have trod. We are not divided, all one body we, one in hope and doctrine, one in charity. Onward, Christian soldiers, marching as to war, with the cross of Jesus, going on before. Onward then, ye people, join our happy throng. Blend with ours your voices in the triumph song. The triumph. Victory is already here, guys. We're not fighting for victory. We're fighting from victory. Let's pray. God, we just come before you and I know some of us in here are probably feeling convicted, God, and I know this message, preparing for this, I was convicted so many times. Help us to wake up, Lord, in, in this country. Our, the church seems to be asleep in so many ways. Help us to wake up. Help us to fight by being on our knees and praying, by being in the word of God, saturating our mind with your word. God, we need you so much. We need you. We can't fight this fight on our own. We need you, Lord. We need your Holy Spirit. Pray for the church, the the global church, Lord, as a whole, that we uh, unite, that we get over our our minor differences, God, that we form a united front against these evil, dark forces. And as this world is shifting from being Christian-friendly to now being hostile to Christians. Prepare us, Lord. We need to be prepared. We need to wake up. We need to grow closer to you so that we can withstand the wiles of the devil and the evil day, God. Help us to put on the armor of God. We need you, God. So I pray this week as we go out that we are watchful and prayerful, aware of our surroundings, in tune with your Holy Spirit. And Lord, we want to make a difference in people's lives, God. If there's anyone that you want us to witness to, Lord, give us the boldness to step out of our comfort zone and to preach the gospel to those who need it, to those who are lost and hurting. We want to see people go to heaven, Lord. We want to see people forgiven of their sins and in an intimate and close relationship with you. And you've commissioned us to go out and spread that message, God. Help us to not get distracted and caught up in the affairs of this life. Help us to stay focused as an enlisted soldier of Jesus Christ. So, Lord, I pray and ask that you fill us all here with your Holy Spirit to step out in boldness and to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this teaching from God's Word. If you have any questions, would like to request prayer, or want more information about our church, and how you can experience the love and hope of Jesus Christ in your life, please visit calvaryqueencreek.org.